0: So glad you weren't sick during the Senate.
1: Yeah, the, the likelihood is that I got sick during the synod because Father Probably. Hayden's also been positive all week. Deacon John was out on Sunday with a positive test. Okay. So um, the, <clears throat> unless, um, we'll see how, you know, we got still got a, a a day or two if symptoms abate and there's negative tests but it could be Deacon Andrew Masters doing the whole thing on Sunday. <laughs> so. You can but do it. Yeah, just sequester here. I don't actually, honestly, if the truth be told, I haven't really been sick in a number of years, but I've never minded every year or two a kind of really good case of the flu it just knocks you down and renders you unable to move and so you just have to kind of sit there and be sick i don't like it all the time so i don't i haven't minded this that much you know other than you know uh how you, how you fill things in so it's been fine hanging in my room you know kind of just chance to organize step back so well, it's it's 10 30 we'll start so let us pray bless the lord who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning Grant, we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace, never hold fast, the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. morning to all, come late. Hi, Joan. We have Elena. Carol's disappeared. My preference is when people, I like to see people, but if you're like indisposed and need to excuse yourself, that's fine. Or you just like to hide because you're shy, that's fine too. Um, we're uh, talking about um, Revelation 17 today. And in many ways, um, this chapter is central to the interpretation of um Revelation. If you are really interested in, some of you already sent it to. Um, I have a did a paper on the interpretation of the whore of Babylon as unfaithful Israel, but it's really the interpretive key to the entire writing because this is who is being judged, this unfaithful woman. And once we identify our rightly, the historical context really fits. You're you, you're you're left with the the inarguable conclusion that um, of where this is situated historically. And so we'll look at that a little bit today. Um, in terms of interpretations. Um, and, and, and just to get into chapter 17 with a verse where in chapter, it says, uh, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment on the of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And later on, should be called Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots. So the question is, who is this? And that's a very... Now, historically, there's been a couple of of interpretations that, that have... Um, prevailed in commentaries. Um, in history, like a lot of conservative Protestant or evangelical commentators saw the Roman Catholic Church as the Whore of Babylon. Um, some commentators would see the, the the whore as Rome, but it really, that's a hard one to maintain since clearly If you look clearly at this passage, the woman, the unfaithful woman, the harlot, is sitting on a beast, and the beast is very clearly Rome. So it's hard to see how the harlot and the beast can both be Rome. Some commentators will say, well, the woman is the religious dimension of state power, and the beast is just the state power. but. I think that's a bit of a it 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 just makes so much more biblical sense and it kind of jumps out the page at us once we look into as we look into some passages what's being said here um, that it, it is now and so again in terms of our interpretive framework. Um, Saying that the 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 initial and primary focus of this passage is on the judgment that comes on unfaithful Old Covenant Israel, epitomized by you know the leadership, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and others who both handed Jesus over to crucifixion and continued to persecute the church intensely for the next generation. That this is that this is the um, judgment. That's the the interpretation. Now, the themes you'll see, we'll see here, which is that unfaithful religion, unfaithful Christianity has certain ongoing kinds of, um, you know, characteristics to it. You know, it, it will compromise with state power for its own good so the idea of an un, of unfaith the unfaithful church as a um, you know as in danger of sliding into this is uh is evident. And that's why I in the notes I sent out when we look at uh, you know the to look at Revelation two fourteen and two twenty when when he, he John was warning two churches to you know, he was he was saying that God wasn't happy that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, where Jezebel was an unfaithful woman, queen, in the Old Testament. And so when the New Testament church that, that John was writing to is tolerating, is tolerating the kind of things that come to full flower in the old covenant Israel that's being judged. So the image of the unfaithful woman can be applied, can be say, yeah, this is like this, and this is the kind of consequence that comes when that unfaithfulness is hardened into a state of being. Um, also the image of uh, Balaam, who uh undermined Israel by counseling uh Moabite women to draw the men into idol worship, you know, through through um sexual encounters. So um that's some of the historical interpretations on on this, you know, the 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 whore, the the harlot, the great harlot, as being whoever, whatever a Christian sect would 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 accuse the other one that they're opposing of being the unfaithful woman harlot, or seeing it as Roman state power somehow differentiated from the beast. So anyway, those are those are interpretations. But um, so let's just we'll go through the text and. And and unpack this interpretation that I I will offer of the great harlot, as as we have throughout our study, as God's um, unfaithful covenant people. So, just to read again. um, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, sits on many waters is uh, is an image um, that is it's a phrase that actually comes um, from the Old Testament, from a reference to the city of uh, of Tyre in a passage. But sitting on many waters, the waters can be a um, an image of the nations, the turbulent sea of the nations, out of which the beast himself from the sea came, if you remember. And remember that uh, Judaism at the time of Christ was dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. There were synagogues in every major city. So this woman can clearly be seen as sitting upon the waters. And the judgment we're going to get here should not, or the, the posture of judgment should not be unaware of the whole narrative of Acts where perpetually throughout the book of Acts, when St. Paul goes, he preaches in a synagogue. Those who reject him, usually get some believers, but those who reject Paul's message in the synagogue typically collude with the local Roman authorities to discipline or persecute or get rid of Paul. So this image of the woman in collusion with the beast is a, a fairly consistent and inarguable theme, not only the Gospels where the Sanhedrin hands Jesus over to Pilate, Rome, the woman in Rome sitting on the back because the woman couldn't do it by herself. She sat on the back of the beast. But throughout Acts, there's this numerous circumstances in all these cities of Asia Minor and, in, and into um, um, Greece and other places where, where it's, um, this conspiracy just repeats itself, where the, the, the opposition to Christ is, there's a collusion with local authorities to persecute the church. So she sits on many waters to spread around the Roman Empire, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And, and what we would think about here is so the kings were talking about this collusion between, you know, of the kings using um her religious status for her for their own benefit, which would be the fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth would be seen more as Israel itself, uh, where um the persecution of of, of the early apostles was intense and um this passage is going, to, is going to talk about about the woman being drunk with with the wine of the blood of the martyrs. So we'll we'll get more of that. Um, feel free if you have a question or a comment to just uh, come in and 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 ask it or or state it. So now. I want to spend some time, extended time, just kind of walking through, I, I've sent you some verses, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and two chapters of Ezekiel, but they are extended condemnations of Israel as as an unfaithful woman. And one of the reasons that the interpretation of the um, great harlot here demands interpretation of Israel is that there really isn't a situation in the Old Testament where any nation is called a harlot unless that nation first had a covenant relationship with God that they violated. So that the unfaithfulness is that the woman who's supposed to be the bride, but who, who becomes unfaithful but someone who's never had a covenant relationship with God, is never termed a harlot per se. There are, two, <clears throat> there are two countries in the Old Testament other than Israel who are referred to in this language of harlotry. Um, one is um, in Isaiah 23, verses 15 through 17, uh, the, <clears throat> the nation of Tyre. I'll just read this verse. Now it shall come to <clears throat> come to pass in that day that Tyre, will be forgotten 70 years according to the days of the king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre to return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Now the unique relationship of Tyre with the God of Israel is rooted in the relationship we see when Solomon built the temple. Hiram, king of Tyre, brought, um, sent a lot of lumber and was a a sort of a co-participant believing in the God of Israel and supporting the work project. So God sees that relationship of knowledge on the part of the king of Tyre as therefore being culpable in subsequent generations where people um, fall away. The other um, nation that's, that's referred to in terms of harlotry is is Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. In Nahum chapter 3, verse 4, it's said of Nineveh, because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations to her harlotries and families to our sorceries. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame." Now, Nineveh um, has the identity of also having a relationship with God because of the preaching of the prophet Jonah, whose ministry was to walk the span of Nineveh, telling the nation that, Yet yet forty days then will be overthrown. And they all repented and believed and averted the judgment, and the idea there would be that because God has revealed Himself to a nation that posits a kind of relational uh connection. I'm gonna shut my window because the garbage truck's up here. Yeah. Um and so that's, those are the only two nations other than Israel ever referred to in terms of harlotry in the Old Testament, and only in those two verses. It's not a very expansive uh, theme. But when we get to Israel, um, we get a lot of extended commentary along those lines. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot it was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. So Isaiah introduces the theme. Jeremiah develops it in terms of, uh, of marriage because in Jeremiah chapter 2, um, he says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them. Then he goes on in, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 2. For you have broken your yoke and burst your bonds and said, I will not transgress. On every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. Now, this high hill and green tree, um, this is the um, the idolater's practice whereby, and this, this, this is kind of an analogy for us to, to take to heart in terms of our own practice of the faith because Israel always maintained the kind of religious, liturgical relationship with God in the temple. But the idea when people went back to their local places, the idea was that you, you paid homage to the local deity there, and there were shrines on the hills. So you would then go make your offering at those hill shrines. And part of the logic of this in paganism is the, the God of that area would then bless you for your work in that area. And you could somehow separate that from your duty to the Lord in, in the temple. But so so the idea of when under every high hill and uh, under every green tree, these are hill, idol shrines erected throughout Israel on in places that were local deities, you know, probably Baal worships. There were a female deity called <clears throat> Ashtoreths and God sees this as fornication because you come to the temple and you enter a relationship with me, but then you go into your life and you make compromises all over the other place. We can see for us, the, the thing that this mentions to what this kind of highlights for us of the need and the need for sort of consistency of faithfulness to God throughout our lives. We can't say, well, I'm going to church on Sunday. That's great. But, but then, at the office, you know to, to get by there, you gotta make some compromises. You gotta cut some corners and tell some lies or whatever however it is those things come out that's that's kind of the same logic of the ancient idol sacrifice. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of how that works out. and he gets very graphic in discussing Israel's unfaithfulness. Um, verse 23 of chapter two. How can you say I'm not polluted? I have not gone after the bales. See your ways in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary, breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind of her in her desire in her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month, they will find her. So they have to go seek out unfaithful Israel as a as a partner. She's more than available and and soliciting these. So there's that. Then chapter three uh, of Jeremiah, verses one through three. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. And this is this, this cry to return to him in Jeremiah, it's um, epitomized in the prophet Hosea. Does anyone remember the prophet Hosea The story there? where he marries an unfaithful woman and then she's unfaithful and he's mad at God for telling him to marry her. And God says, that's kind of what it's like being married to Israel. And he tells her to go buy her back. So he's going to redeem the unfaithful woman. Um, But the difference between Jeremiah, who's writing, who's writing before the destruction of Solomon's Temple in 586 B.C. And New Testament Israel is that when the judgment at the hand of the Babylonians came and Israel went into exile and came back, there was an opportunity to be to repent and be restored. But what's what's notable about the New Testament is it is the end of the old covenant age there is no more opportunity for Israel to repent. The the end of the covenant, the telos is here in Christ, having rejected him, there's nothing more to do. So this is why we in Jeremiah is offering repentance, but in the the New Testament, after the rejection of Christ and a generation of calling Israel to repent, there's not another opportunity. It's interesting in verse three, says says, uh, you have, a, a, of Jeremiah chapter three, you have a harlot's forehead, you refuse to be ashamed, that kind of stiff neck, but it'll talk about something written on her forehead in, in, uh, in, in Revelation as well. I was reading um, some um, commentaries in Ezekiel 16 and, and Ezekiel 23, the two passages that are perhaps the most graphic. And um, if you're preaching through the whole Bible, verse by verse, some of these passages can be very, very difficult to preach because they're extremely graphic in terms of their, their uh, accusation of Israel about her unfaithfulness. Um, but Ezekiel chapter 16, um, verse 14 your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty for it was a perfect through my through my splendor, which I have bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame and poured out on your harlotry, poured out your harlotry in every for everyone passing by who would have it. verse 22, and in all your abominations and acts of harlotry you did not remember the days of your when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood, is kind of the, the birth imagery. Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Verse 28, you played the harlot with the Assyrians. And note here that that the the universality of the harlotry matches the harlot of Revelation, who sits on many waters. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldean, and even there you were not satisfied. Verse 31, you erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high place in every street. Yet you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payments to harlots but you have made payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot and that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. The the judgment idea in verse 36, because of your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness is uncovered, in your harlotry with your lovers with all your abominable idols because of the blood of your children which you gave to them it refers to child sacrifice shrines truly therefore i'll gather your lovers with whom you took pleasure all those you loved and all those you hated i'll gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness so you made compromise with the nations but this is part of the theme of revelation that the very beast with which she's compromising is the beast that's going to destroy her in the the invasion. Just a few more verses from from Ezekiel 23. Um, But my point in doing this too is to highlight something that's just often missed, and I, I made a point when we started Revelation, is that Everything in Revelation is deeply rooted in the scriptures. So if you have an image of an unfaithful woman appearing in Revelation, you want to know where does this come from? And it's inarguable where it comes from. Once you read the prophet and say clearly, this is God's verdict on Israel who was unfaithful. Most of the errors in Interpreting Revelation come when people try to make an interpretation out of whole cloth and not deeply rooted in the fabric of scripture like Revelation intends itself. Verse 20, chapter uh, Ezekiel 23, verse 14, she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the walls, images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion girded with belts around their waists, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them look like captains as soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea now part of this lusting here we should be we should unpack what was talking about because this is the second um the first primary unfaithfulness that has this sort of sexual overtone is the worship at local idol shrines, instead of full devotion to God. The second major pillar of it is trusting in foreign powers rather than trusting in God. So when Israel was overwhelmed and surrounded by an enemy, God wanted them to trust in him. And instead, they they hired the Chaldeans as their protectors, paid them tribute, so you protect us from them. And But then, of course, Somebody later on would rebel against the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans would come and destroy them or they so and typically it was Israel lived in the space uh, in the ancient world with Egypt to the south and whatever sort of to the you know northeast whatever power was prevailing would would come down through um Israel, which was a natural passageway down to Africa. And so that was the land that was fought over a lot. And rather than trusting God, and, and um, you get in, images of this in, say, judges, when Israel's overwhelmed, they call to God, he raises up a deliverer and saves them. They, they trusted in political alliances rather than in God himself. Um, I don't have a ready um, application to our current situation and relationship between church and politics. But there clearly is one about the idea that we we, we, we trust in some political solution to something, uh, because it because it, it's not, and it's rather than trusting that God is going to bring about what he is. But those are the poles of it. So it's not just a generic parlant imagery. It is, God is, Israel is devoted to God. That means worship him only, no idols. And it means trust in him. Don't trust in other things to defend you that compromise you. Um, verse 17 The Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their immorality. So she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and covered her nakedness. Then I alienated myself from her. she lusted for paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys. That's where it gets a little graphic. She lusted for well-endowed paramours. (laughs) So this is the judgment of Israel at the end of the Old Testament, when Ezekiel and Jeremiah are the the primary prophets who preach to old covenant Israel, just before the Babylonian invasion of, of Jerusalem, in which the temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple, and in which people were carried off to exile. Um, that was 586 BC when the destruction of the temple was. They returned from exile, they rebuilt the temple, and um, that's the, the rebuilt temple. That's the temple that Jesus comes to But again, the point between the transition from the situation in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and what we're dealing with in Revelation is there was still one more chance because the Messiah himself would come. And now what we're dealing with in Revelation is the end of the old covenant age and the final judgment on the woman who continues to be unfaithful. Now, it it should be mentioned here, even in this image, because it it feels as though this um, one discomfort is a blanket condemnation of first century Israel, but there really actually is a, um, there are two women in Revelation, the woman clothed with the sun, um, and this unfaithful woman. And in the first instance, The faithful woman is those who, when Jesus comes, they accept him, and they are also Jewish. So the true bride is Jewish also in its foundation. What we get in the New Testament is the expansion of the uh, identity of the the covenant people from ethnic to universal. We got that in chapter 7 when the um, the the elect were were described as both the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel, the fullness of Israel, which then became a multitude of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue that no one could number. So there's so it's it's the only distinction here. There's no there's no um, sentence other than the the referendum is on the person of the Messiah that that, that God has sent, and people will either embrace him and enter into covenant relationship with God through him and become part of the bride of Christ or rejecting him, leaning on and, and, and um, <clears throat> trusting instead in political power arrangements, they, they become the epitome of the old covenant, unfaithful woman who finally is judged. And in many ways, this is, this is the ultimate division of all humanity. Any thoughts, questions for any of that? It's harder online, people are less reluctant to talk, but please say something. I don't want to talk straightforward for fifteen minutes without input. At least when a person somebody has a question now and then. But there's not I mean it's not there's nothing mysterious mysterious about that. Hopefully it's clear though that, that what we're what we're looking at. So chance let's move on with uh, chapter seventeen verse three. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. The beast there is not entirely clear because both the dragon and the beast from the sea were described as having seven heads and 10 horns. It's kind of a juxtaposition of those images. Um, The wilderness is interesting. Um, One interpretation of that is um, she's in the wilderness um, because unfaithful Israel lives in the wilderness. That's her abode, which is also the abode of evil. We notice that the the New Covenant people, the, the faithful woman, spends a time in the wilderness, but it's only for purification to bring her back into the land. So the wilderness here is an image of her her abode. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And We're going to get, again, the um, the golden cup is like this cup of communion. And so the idea of um, the woman, unfaithful woman, in relationship with the beast has a cup to offer, which is ultimately going to be a cup of judgment. And this is clearly contrasted, at least symbolically, with the church, who is the faithful woman connected to God, who also offers a cup of communion, a cup of salvation, which is interesting. It's the blood of Christ. And here <clears throat> we're told that she's drunk on the blood of the martyrs and saints. It reminds me of the, it calls to mind the double meaning of the passion narrative when um, um, Pilate tries to profess innocence, to say, "I'm innocent of the blood," and the crowd says, "His blood be on us and on our children." And that can be the blood, the the cup, the blood and cup of judgment. It can also be the covering blood, the cleansing, you know. And, it, and so this this contrast and juxtaposition of the two are clearly being offered here. Um, being portrayed here, being developed here. Her um, glorious apparel is her native vocation as God's people. He decked her in jewels. The high priest was gloriously arrayed. Um, He had taken her from Egypt and made her into a glorious woman. But what's happening here in, in John's heaven's eye view, he's seeing her true nature. She looks glorious, but she's really just a, a, a harlot in the wilderness on the back of a beast. And this is um, something to always remember for us when we're looking at the world, because um, things in the world don't always look as they truly are in the fullness of, of God's sight. It looks like those in power are thriving and they can't be overthrown. It looks like those who are faithful are being persecuted, um, but from God's, in God's eyes. So what we're getting here is their true nature and identity revealed to John who sees them as God sees them. On her forehead, a name was written. Remember, we had the forehead image in in one of the Harlager passages from Jeremiah. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk, drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The, um, in Matthew uh, chapter 23, verse um, 23, and um, this is where his identity becomes clearer if we just look at it. Um, so he says in Matthew 23, verse um 34, when he's talking to the Pharisees. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you, and this is, this is connecting us here, this, this woman drunk with the blood of the saints, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, what's interesting here is that. So. It is the vocation of Israel. And this flows out of. um, Isaiah 53. Wounded for our transgressions. And of the Messiah to bear the sins of the world, and so so we know that in our theology, the Jesus it dies for all of our sins. Um, but if that is rejected, the converse is this: that you die for all of your sins. So the blood comes on you if if the if the cleansing blood is refused. The other, so is so in the person of Israel and the actual last generation will come to Israel, all sins were born. And she, and John marvelled because he, he, he she was such a glory. It seems like he marvels because she was such a glorious woman and. It didn't make sense that, 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 that it was a conflicting imagery for him. Probably impressive nature, also a seductive power. So moving on to verse seven. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Now, one thing we didn't touch on that last section where he says uh, mystery Babylon the Great. When he says mystery, this indicates something. This indicates that um, well, what is a mystery in the New Testament?
0: Is it, is it Christ and that we, the, that we have that connection in, into that divine?
1: The, the concept of mystery, the, the idea of mystery, what, what, what does that, um, like St. Paul says in Ephesians, that, that Christ made known to me the mystery. It's the yeah. same word here. It's related. Mystery is the word, is the Greek word from which the Latin word sacramentum comes from or sacrament. Everyone's got, so this is a basic concept of the New Testament is that a mystery is not like a murder mystery, you don't know who did it. A mystery in the New Testament is something that's, has been hidden or is hidden, but is revealed in some way. So when, when John proclaims it's a mystery there's a hidden thing that's being revealed to John. A sacrament is a revelation. It's a hidden thing, the reality of Christ, that's revealed through the bread and the wine and the participation. And this lets hey, us so, the, Yeah.
2: Hey, Bishop, this is Jack. Uh, so uh, Jesus in his parables would be revealing mysteries of the kingdom then. Is that true
1: well he would be um he would be both revealing and concealing them well then that's a mystery i I, I want to say but because this is something people often miss with parables jesus in his own language um says that the main purpose of parable is actually to hide the truth he says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to others in parables that seeing they may not see. So the, 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 dif- the difference between people who have faith and people who don't have faith is that faith through prayer and, and seeking obtains understanding, but a lack of faith encounters the obstacle, I don't get it, and, and gives up and doesn't get to understand it. So, so parables, but in truth, parables have both the ability to reveal and conceal. So to you, to the elect, yes, you can search out the meaning of the parable and find it out, but to people outside it, they can't get it because it's just...
2: They've been blinded, yeah.
1: So I'll tell you the mystery of the woman, verse seven, and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Now, clearly here in this language, the the beast that was, is not, will be for a little bit and then won't be, is clearly contrasted with Christ and God, who was and is and is to come, whose existence is continuous. And so this, in many ways, is a kind of destruction, uh, description of the nature of evil power, which is that um, it, uh, it may be defeated and it may seem like it has some life and it comes back, but it comes back mainly to be judged and finally destroyed. So it, it, it's, it's, and, and, and part of the um <clears throat> we've already talked about um, in the previous passage where the beast had a mortal head wound that was healed. We talked about this in terms of the biblical narrative where Christ crushed the head of the serpent, putting it to death, but then it seemed to still come back to life. So what's that about? But just, <clears throat> again, just just to be ultimately judged. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Marvel that he has this life, lacking the wisdom to know that is temporary life. Same thing, the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows his time is short. And so much of the spiritual life is caught up in this tension between um, the apparent triumph of evil in the short period and the temptation to capitulate for temporary comfort versus the assured triumph of God that already has been and will be brought about locally and universally in God's good time for which we're to persevere faithfully and wait. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Um... The beast is associated with the devil here because he comes out of the bottomless pit. We've already had that in Revelation 9:1, 9, 9:11. 9, have it again in 21 through 3. You can marvel at its re- at its power, but wisdom is to know that the main point at the time is short. It's it's not going to be forever. Seven mountains indicate that the beast is Rome, who, who famously sits on seven hills. Um, the seven kings, um, you can find a list of seven that kind of fits um, the line of the Caesars, which were um, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius. Um, Nero the sixth was on the throne. Uh there's another one called Galba, so I'm not I'm not versed enough to argue for that, so you can go look that up in all the books, but but that's um But you he's, he's talking, you know, the, the kings, five have fallen, one The other has not yet come. When he comes, he must continue just kind of talking about some of the political dynamics around uh, the power of Rome, around the fall of Jerusalem. And the beast, verse 11, that was and is not, is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. The eighth again. There's a lot of parody here because in the in the biblical thing, the eighth day is the beginning of the new creation, and so the eighth um, mimics the idea of something new, but it's always short lived with the beast, and this is always the reality of just human human attempts at bringing about the kingdom of God. They, they they look impressive, but they always fall short after a while. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. I, I you know there's you can run with that, but the idea of the ten of ten horns represents a fullness of of power, a completion of power. And when um, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and Israel, other nations joined in and helped. So it was the fullness of the power of the beast represented by all the kingdoms that were its subject kingdoms I think that is being referred to here. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They'll be supportive of the attempt to, to, um, and 14, these will make war with the lamb, the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Now, one of the things that should be, um, you know, there's persecution of the church, but also in the destruction of Jerusalem, it should be noted that from the Roman point of view, there wasn't a lot of difference between Judaism and Christianity. And there was a, at least in the Roman mind of destroying the temple, there was some idea that if we get at the root of these, we'll kill both of these pesky religions that we don't like. So the war with the lamb is that is that the destruction though, though certainly aimed at the Jewish rebellion, is, is also aimed at at all things um, Jewish that are that are, are really seen as, as part of the same cloth, um, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He is really in charge. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's not the one who was and is not and is coming and then he's going to go. And those who were with him were called chosen and faithful, because they're faithful. And they said to me, "The waters which you saw were the harlot sits or peoples, multitudes, nations." And we should know here again that the um, in the in the event of the destruction of Jerusalem. The Christians were warned to flee, and the early church escaped because of the prophetic word and was across the Jordan River before the Romans came. So there is a spiritual salvation that all who believe in Christ have so that if even if they die as martyrs, they still have life from Him who was and is and is to come, but there's also a real historical salvation for the early church. Who and this is what Jesus said in in, in the Olivet Discourse. Um, you know, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by army, grab your stuff and go. And and so they they, they got out of they got out of, of town. verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. A pretty graphic image of the burning of Jerusalem in AD 70. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is that great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. This trips people up um, because you say, "Well, the woman is the great city who reigns over the kings of the earth." You say, "Well, it's got to be Rome," but we have to remember here that this is um, being viewed from the heavenly perspective, and. What we've actually seen about the, 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 the true Israel is that the actual reigning over the earth is Christ, Revelation 4 and 5, and seated with him reigning are 24 elders with crowns on their heads. And that's where the rule over the kings of the earth takes place. That was Israel's vocation. To, to rule for God in the world, that's the vocation she's abandoned for her harlot status. She's abandoned her glorious status, her prayerful, faithful rule over the nations, trusting God for compromise and judgment. A question, yes, please.
2: Um, you commented earlier about Christ told the Christians, Get out, it, it, destruction's coming. And you said that you referenced that they were they went across the river Jordan, they're on the other side in safety. And that sounds an awful lot like a, the same pattern of the Jews coming out of Egypt, crossing going through the waters, waters closing up and not letting evil follow them. But they're on the other side of the waters in safety. And then I hear I makes me think about all the water references in the throne room of God. And that any comment on that or or am I
1: No, I don't think it's a it's a it's a bad image. You know, obviously um... The, the story, you can, you can Google it, research it up, Eusebius talks about it. There's some debate about it because it wasn't, uh, and I've got a bunch of references in a paper I wrote somewhere, but, but there's substantial evidence that the early Christian community went across the Jordan. into And it, it also, um, what it kind of gets at that ties into the passage, since the woman is called Babylon the Great, In the old testament babylon where was where was the place where israel was in captivity right so one of the appropriate aspects of babylon the great for new testament israel for the old covenant end of old covenant israel is that god's true people are being persecuted by her and are in a sense captive and their freedom then is to escape from it and actually to reverse the entry into the promised land where Joshua came across the Jordan, now the church is going to go go across out into, because that which is supposed to be God's chosen people has set itself up for the judgment that comes on the nations and the protection is taken away. And actually the, 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 the leaving of the early church would be the last it's kind of interesting I thought about this image so much, so but it, I think it's significant. Um, in the Old Testament, before the Babylonians destroyed the temple, Ezekiel had a vision how um, God left. And there's the in Ezekiel, first 10 chapters, it comes and goes, but how the cherubim rise up out of the Holy of Holies, go to the door, and then leave the city by way of the Mount of Olives. And once the glory of God leaves, it's open for destruction. Because the idea, well, God will protect us, well, he's left. He's not going to protect you now. Now, the return of the glory of God to Israel, in reversing that process, is seen in Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives into And so once the word is made flesh and dwelt among us, this is the presence of God among human beings, is in his person. And then after his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, once the spirit of God descends upon the new covenant community, that is where God now dwells. And that's where God's protection and providence is is located. So it follows that God would have that presence leave the Holy Land, leave Jerusalem, in order to leave Jerusalem open again to judgment by the Romans. Because the fleeing church is the equivalent of God's Old Testament presence and glory, because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and beheld his glory. And now that glory is what we bear. So I see that kind of thing. I hadn't really thought of it before. Wow.
2: I wonder how that plays out in the modern church. I mean, I think about the Western church and how you've talked about the uh, what word I'm looking for, the merchandising of religion. And you know, is that, can that be the same pattern of a harlot idea?
1: You know, there's, um, well, these are perpetual temptations for the church and the people of God. So, we're, we're you know, that we're, we're talking about first the application of Israel, but yeah, we're all tempted to do all the things Israel got in real deep trouble for. And so... Yeah, the whole idea, I mean, certainly in, in, a, in a culture as commercial as ours is, um, um, there's all kinds of temptations because, you know, and it almost goes like, okay, you're this small persecuted church with no strength. You pray, you pray, and, and then God begins to, you know, deliver the people. And all of a sudden, now you have prosperity. Now you run the empire. And then what happens? Um it was interesting. I watched a documentary last night, One Thing, When You're Sitting Around Sick, You Do It, and, and it's kind of an interesting documentary. I mean, Rob, you'd probably relate to it. It's called uh, Jesus Music, and, and it chronicles the history of, of, um, of Christian music as it, as it was rooted in the Jesus people, the Southern California Jesus People movement, yeah. the Little Stars. And it's, its migration into popularity, and and um, but you see some of the same things in that in that documentary where you know you had this clear uh, thing that happened, uh, and they juxtaposed it with the '60s unrest and all those things, which is kind of nice historically in the political alienation and that a lot of hippie people kind of were looking for something else, and it. It and certainly centered at at, at uh, in, in Southern California, some great Calvary Chapel to some degree in that late, late time, and this thing happened, and out of that spawned this music culture. There's largely a, a worship music culture. But then, you know, it became, you know, a more refined music culture, and then it became a performance culture, and then the Christian stars are making millions, and that's its own temptation. I'm not throwing any stones at anybody. I'm just saying, um, and you know, I mean, I would, I would say the same. When I came to St. Matthew's, we met in the community church in Corona Del Mar, you know, and and so we, you know, just and now you, know, you raise some money, you buy some property, all of a sudden you're more established. It's always a temptation, you know, to become comfortable, to hold on to it, to 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 try to. So you always want to be aware of it. That's that's from the standpoint of the spiritual life. Of um, it, it is why status and um, wealth and um, popularity are things that are seen as temptations in the spiritual life, not as things to be pursued, because. The minute we hold on to them all of a sudden we start adjusting our religion to make this work yeah. things we never thought about doing when we didn't have anything because we're just holding on to god right you mm-hmm. know compromising because what you would you know yeah you're, you're not doing it you just you have yeah. so and, and and so this is uh and is why in the history of churches always a sort of undulation ebb and flow between you know prosperity between you know a vibrant church that does something and then becomes comfortable and then kind of declines and needs renewal because it's just a, it's just a natural undulation of the human condition.
2: Yeah, it's interesting we do that. I mean it's almost like the supplement idea. a little we find out that a little bit is good so more must be better and so then we end up
1: becoming toxic by it. Well, we think that, and I think the the real temptation is to think that that the influence engendered by influence and money is greater than the influence engendered by prayer and holiness. And and so that's I think some of the political temptation. Okay, we got to make this. We got to get a movement going. Get a, got a bunch of people on well, That's a that's a political construct.
2: We have to be relevant for Jesus.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he was he was clearly concerned about that you know? yeah <laughs> that's why i spoke in parables
0: <laughs> well, one, thing, one thing that that i keep seeing over and over again is like the devil always offers us something we already have you know but it's like i can see how and i was going to ask you about that how i'm still stuck on the beginning part when you were saying you know, they hire the Chaldeans, like in our normal everyday life here would be like, look, God provided these mercenaries to protect us, you know what I mean? And so people get in that mindset and think, oh, you know, God's giving us more information or, you know, or it's like someone told me before, it's like if we had telepathy before Adam and Eve did, let's say, and and it's like the devil comes in, like, look, here's this phone where you can call each other when you used to all be in quiet and be connected, you know, or we could walk on water and you look, here's this boat, you know, and there's nothing wrong with the boat, but now you're trusting in that instead of understanding how Christ could walk on the elements, you know, I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, I think that, the the, the Again, getting back to the, the spiritual life has an ongoing challenge to it. And most of these things, whether they be phones or whatever, are not intrinsically bad. We can also get into error of um you know, of of so you know, we just got rid of those, they'll all be better. No, we always have to fight for our freedom, which is discipline ourselves against excessive attachment to anything in the world.
0: Sober and all things. So.
1: Anyway, I want to make sure we finish up, because so we're ten thirty. So they're well aware sure when.
0: Bishop, can I so, just ask you, you what? You can platform? just
1: walk out when you're in a, in a video thing, but we'll stop. We'll, we'll close with a prayer. Let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen.
0: Can I ask you what platform that was on? The Jesus music. You Prime
1: video.
0: Amazon Prime. Okay.
1: My video. It's about an hour and something. Documentary he has like the Amy Grant, looms Large, some of the luminaries of it. So it was, it was, it, was um, it was instructive. It was it was a good little uh, you know, uh, especially for people who who aren't familiar with, as I'm not completely familiar with it, the whole Jesus People movement and where it came from and some of the contours of it. And and then uh... did they mention
2: on that video? <clears throat> the movement with Calvary Chapel that you already Love Song. Do you remember? Yes. Yes. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, they were right there. That was we were going to Calvary Chapel at that time when Love Song came on the scene and they were Yeah,
1: that was that looks large and it starts with Lonnie Frisbee preaching, looking like Jesus and yeah and, yeah, and Chuck Smith and and that. But I mean, it's mostly about the music, but all those major characters and bands you know will be in it for sure.
2: Yeah, it certainly was a progression of it. I remember. By the time we left, it was million dollar stage lighting. <laughs> <laughs> multiple cameras at angles and wired up huge uh Recording studio. Oh my gosh, it it, it evolved exactly like you said.
1: Anyway, well, we're well, good to be with you this morning. Thanks for showing up online. Hope to be back uh, in person next week and, and carry on. All right. I feel
0: better, Thank, Bishop. You, Bishop. Thank you. Thank
1: you.